0: Sometimes churches will have on their websites a tab that reads what to expect. It's a way of attempting to help first-time visitors to know what it is like to be at a Lord's Day gathering, given the fact that some places have strange and unbiblical things that take place within Lord's Day gatherings, sullying the reputation of local churches in many cases, and given the fact that people sometimes just... Have erroneous stereotypes as to what actually happens during a worship service, I can definitely see how that could be helpful. It could be helpful, I get it. But knowing what to expect in a local church and in a Lord's Day gathering is not only for prospective attenders, it's important for Christians. Christians need to know what to expect from a corporate time of worship on the Lord's Day and also what to expect from a healthy local church. Such things include the public reading of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Corporate prayer, 1 Timothy chapter 2. You can look at the opening verses, make your way through the chapter and you'll see another example. Singing. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And doubtless there are other things that should be happening within a local church. There should be a healthy commitment to the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's table. There should be opportunities to give. There should be the practice of church discipline. There should be qualified leadership, qualified elders. There should be, I would argue, a plurality of eldership. Those who serve in the diaconate should also be qualified. And of course, there should be the preaching of God's Word. One thing, and not the only thing, that every person should expect from a biblically sound church is the preaching of the Word of God. Just as an aside, that's not somebody saying they're preaching from the Word of God when in actuality they are doing very little of it. That can happen in some places. People can say, we preach from the Word of God, but then you hear very little preaching of the Word of God and it's treated as though the Word of God is kind of like a garnishment and the main course is something else. Stories, illustrations, and things of that nature. Every believer should expect a full meal of biblical teaching when gathering together on the Lord's Day. It was what Paul expected from Timothy, that he would be preaching the Word. And it is what God expects from pastors, and it is what God expects His people to expect from pastors. And that's part of the reason why this is important, because it's not only by extension a call for pastors and elders to make sure they are preaching the Word, but it's a call for the people of God to expect that from those who are in positions of leadership. And if you've ever struggled with coming to terms with the seriousness of this expectation for pastoral ministry in the local church, today's passage, or at least the two verses that we are going to study, makes that point in no uncertain terms. Having declared to Timothy both Scripture's origin, that all Scripture is theonustos, God-breathed, And Scripture's function, verse 15 of chapter 3, it is able to make one wise unto salvation, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, verse 16, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, verse 17. We now come to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4, where Paul sets before Timothy a solemn and serious call in light of such precious truth. So we begin in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, where we read, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom. We'll stop there and we'll pick it up in verse 2 as the statement essentially continues. So this verse begins with the call to Timothy, uh, at least the beginning of it. I solemnly charge you Now this word that's used here is a compound word. It has a preposition, and it's the normal word for to testify or to witness. But the intensity of the word, you might say, is somewhat compounded by the preposition that begins it. So when you read in our text, I solemnly charge you, the seriousness of the call is somewhat accented by the word itself and the preposition that is placed in front of um, the word for to testify or to witness. The earnestness of this word is also illustrated by surveying some of the other times and other places it's used. For example, the rich man of Luke 16 wanted to solemnly warn his brothers so that they would not come to the place of torment where he was. Luke chapter 16, verse 28. This word is used to describe Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, verse 40. It's used to describe the proclamation, or to speak of the proclamation of Peter and John in Samaria, Acts chapter 8, verse 25. It's used to speak of how Peter and others who saw the resurrected Christ were charged to solemnly testify that Jesus will judge the living and the dead, Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Which is a very fitting reference in light of what we are studying this afternoon. It's a word that's used to describe how Paul testified that Jesus was the Christ to the Jewish people. You see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 25. It's a word that's used to describe how Paul testified to both Jews and Greeks of the need for repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in Acts chapter um, 20, verse 21. It's also a word that's used to speak of how the Holy Spirit testified to Paul that in every city that he went, there awaited him chains and tribulations. Acts chapter 20, verse 23. It's interesting. In the very next verse, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that he counted his life as nothing, only that he would finish his course and the ministry entrusted to him by the Lord Jesus. And he put that in this kind of succinct form when he said, to fully testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. So here's Timothy, and he is again on the receiving end of this kind of solemn charge. He received it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. Same language used there from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and here he is on the receiving end of that charge, or that kind of charge, yet again. But Paul would amplify the solemnity of the forthcoming charge, and he does that at least immediately, we see, via the following prepositional phrase in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So imagine the scene. There Paul is in his prison cell. He is largely alone. He's got Luke with him, he'll note that a little bit later on. He's got some other brethren that he's going to send greetings from, but he's largely alone. And there's a sense in which as he's writing this to Timothy, as he's spoken about the Scriptures, its origin and its function, now he charges Timothy. And so as to amplify the forthcoming charge, he says that this charge is in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. It's as though, so to speak, if you kind of imagine the imagery that's painted with the text here. It's as though you see Paul, but then you see Paul, as it were, in front of the backdrop of what Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 describe, the throne of God and the Lamb. It's as though he's giving this charge to Timothy in the very presence of God. And what he's essentially doing here, he's saying essentially that the Father and the Son are bearing witness of this solemn charge. So he's amplifying the seriousness of it in this moment. I do think the gravity and solemnity of Scripture is always there, but there's something about words and images connoted in statements like this that do help us to um, more easily grasp the solemnity and the gravity of the moment. But Paul is not done increasing, if you will, the, the volume bar of solemnity. Look at what he continues to add. One more little bit of amplification. He describes Jesus and He calls to mind ultimate eschatological moments. He identifies Jesus as the One who is to judge the living and the dead. All judgment, we know, has been entrusted to the Son. Jesus said as much. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus spoke and He said that the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. See that in John 5.22. You'd see that in similar places, like Acts chapter 10, verse 42, and Acts chapter 17, verse 31, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge all men through Jesus Christ. Um, now, believers, since this is important for us to note, will not be judged for their or for our sins, because they've already been put away in Christ. But there is nonetheless coming a judgment for believers. Our sin has been put away, but there is still an evaluation to come. The Scripture identifies it as the judgment seat of Christ. You see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And there is this reckoning that we have, this gracious evaluation, where the One who bought us with His own blood is going to evaluate the works that we have done in this life. And they will be shown to be either... Gold, silver, and precious stones. So they will be burnt up and they will be shown to have been wood, um, hay, stubble. So there is coming a judgment for the people of God, an evaluation where rewards will be rendered. That is the judgment seat of Christ. But then there is what the Scripture calls the great white throne judgment. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. Verses 11-15, through this is the judgment seat where the unbelieving are judged according to the works that they have committed and the light that they have spurned. I want to apply this for a moment because I think it's so helpful for us to take a moment and say what perspective comes with the words, Who is to judge the living and the dead? If you lose perspective of a coming appointment, you'll be less likely to prepare for it. So I first want to apply this to the believer. For the believer, let me use the following illustration. It's a simple one, but it's what came to my mind, and I think it's a good way of illustrating the point. We have an appointment coming up. It's about a month and a half from now, something like that, uh, for Thea with the pediatrician. The last time we were there, at her sixth month, appointment. He gave us a list of things to essentially work on, a checklist that we want to meet and do our best to help Thea meet by the time we get to the nine-month appointment. So the idea was, you, you know, we, we as parents do, do things like tummy time with Thea and do things to help her prepare for the appointment. And there's a sense in which, a sense in which the upcoming appointment is not only an evaluation of Thea's health, though of course that's what it is, but there's a small sense in which it's an evaluation of us. Have we just done our due diligence to do whatever we could to help her be in the best place that she could when the appointment comes? Well, if you live in light of a forthcoming appointment, and I've tried to live in light of that appointment. It's a good way of being reminded to help Thea with things as much as um, myself or Lauren can. But I think how much more are we helped by living in light of the fact that we actually do have an appointment there's actually coming a moment where we will stand as individuals. We're not going to stand as a collective group of people and get judged collectively at the judgment seat of Christ. The picture is that we're standing there as individuals. And if you live in light of the fact that what you do today will one day be evaluated, not in some kind of fearful way, because all your sins have been put away. You're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and your sins will not be called to remembrance. But some works will be burnt up. Let's say if those works were, say, done for wrong motivations or something like that. But how exciting it is to think it's coming it's coming, a glass of water that you give in Jesus' name will be, if it, so to speak, called to mind by Jesus on that day and you will not lose your reward. I think that is invigorating and that is exciting. And it adds such purpose to every day when we live in light of that coming day. However, for the unbeliever, I do want to plead. I want to plead with such a one to tremble at the prospect of being judged For your sins by the Savior whose blood was shed for the remission of sins. Can you imagine the indescribable disaster of being resurrected from the dead? Standing before the judgment seat. The great white throne judgment. Seeing the one who died for the remission of sins. And then being told, depart from me. Then being cast into the lake of fire. Where the smoke of torment ascends and does not end. Living in light of that day provides with it an impetus to run to Christ if you have not done so yet. It is a blessed reality to think that there is one who was, if you will, banished from God's gracious presence, so to speak, when He experienced the outer darkness of the cross. So why should you experience the outer darkness when there is one who bore the totality of the cup you can never exhaust? Think of the sadness of that moment. There is one who has satisfied the penalty of God's wrath. There is one who has taken the outer darkness in his body on the cross. Why would you put yourself in a position to stand before the throne of God guilty? When there is one who has satisfied and bore the guilt, satisfied the wrath and borne the guilt, on behalf of all who would come to him for the forgiveness of sins. and can be welcomed into the presence of God as a son or daughter of God. To turn from sin and to turn to Christ is essentially turning off of that road that leads to the great white throne. And by the grace of God, it's getting on that narrow road that leads to being before the judgment seat of Christ. Seeing the one who loves you and bought you with his blood, but will nonetheless evaluate what you did in his name. Well, back to the text. Paul mentioned other eschatological realities when he spoke of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His kingdom. Now, the word appearing that's used here, um, pretty much is always used with reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One time it's used with reference to His first coming. It's a good reminder that just as sure as Jesus' first coming was, and it happened, so is Jesus' second coming. The second coming that's spoken of here, this appearing that's spoken of here, is that moment that Jesus spoke of when he said that he will come in the glory of his father and with his angels Matthew chapter 16 verse 27 and when he appears comes the establishment of his visible kingdom both are coming Have you ever had uh, a moment when you went outside, let's say in the beginning of a day and you went outside and all of a sudden you were kind of groggy and then the sun hit your face and all of a sudden you kind of felt energized by the sun? It's objective, but you felt as though your whole body was like absorbing the sunlight and you were feeling strengthened. Or maybe, to use another metaphor, um, but from real life experience, all of a sudden you wake up in the morning, your face is groggy, you throw cold water on your face and all of a sudden you feel a little bit more awake. Or, to use another example from, you know, daily life for many people, you woke up in the morning and you were really groggy and you had a nice cup of coffee and before you know it, all of a sudden you were more alert. I think that's something of what should happen when we look at these eschatological realities. To whatever degree we lose sight of what's coming, Jesus is going to return. He's going to judge the living and He's going to judge the dead. He is even going to judge believers. Whose sins have already been put away, but nonetheless evaluate their works. He's coming. And I think when we look at these realities, it's like taking um, kind of an injection of scriptural truth that awakens our spiritual awareness. Putting us in a better position mentally and spiritually to faithfully fulfill our Christian responsibilities. Um, even as the language was doubtless intended, at least in part, to move Timothy by, the vir- by virtue of thundering solemnity and glorious and frightful eschatological realities, may we be moved. For believers, may we be moved in the direction of faithfulness. For anyone who does not know that they are forgiven, may you be moved in the direction of forgiveness. Because there is coming a day when Christ will judge sin. And why stand before Him guilty? when all who believe in Him are declared justified, righteous, and innocent in sight of God. Well, that's the preface with a powerful parenthesis. Now comes the exhortation to fidelity and the fulfillment of duty. In verse 2, we read that charge, Paul went on to tell Timothy, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So he tells Timothy to preach. Preach. This is a high honor for Timothy. He's going to stand in the line of many godly men who have gone before. John the Baptist came into the wilderness, or came from the wilderness... Preaching. He was preaching in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 3 verse 1. Jesus preached that the kingdom of God was at hand and that people needed to repent. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. Philip preached Christ to the people of Samaria. Acts chapter 8 verse 5. Paul shortly after his conversion, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. You see that in Acts chapter 9 verse 20. He preached Christ to as many people as he could. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Jew or Gentile, he just wanted to preach Christ and Christ crucified. And here Paul was reminding Timothy, preach the Word. Proclaim it. Herald it. Declare it. Preach it. Timothy was to be the opposite of those um, that Isaiah spoke of when he wrote, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. So often in Israel's history, we see those who were charged to proclaim the word of God to people and to warn the people, but they didn't. They were like dogs who should have been barking when there were intruders at the door, but instead were sleeping. And that's how such men were likened. They were likened to that. Timothy was not to be that. Timothy was to preach. And what was he to preach? He was to preach the Word. That's important. In Jesus' day, there were religious leaders that were teaching the commandments of men as though they were the doctrines of God. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. In Timothy's day, in Ephesus, there were false teachers that were teaching stories and myths as though it was the equivalent of God's truth. And they were actually... um, standing against the truth, these things ought not to be the prescription for the pulpit, the curriculum for conversion and correction and comfort, and so much more is found in the Word of God. It's found in the Scriptures. And even as it was important for Timothy to preach the Word, so it is important for pastors and elders to preach the Word today. For many reasons. I just want to give you a few of them, and I think this is instructive for us. Why is it important to preach the Word? Well, I want to start here. One, because there's a lot to cover. <laughs> if you think about what Jesus told his disciples, they were to go out and they were to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were to make disciples. And what were they to teach the disciples that they made? Everything that Jesus had commanded them. That's a lot. So preach the word. Get to the business of teaching the word of God because there's a lot to be taught So the more you're in the Word, the more ground you're going to cover. To use language from the angel that set the apostles free, in Acts chapter 5, after setting them free, he tells them to go and declare all the words of this life. Think about Paul. When he's speaking with the Ephesian elders, he said that he did not fail to share, to preach, to teach the full counsel of God. So why is it important to preach the Word? Well, one reason is because there's a lot that God wants His people to hear. So the more the Scriptures are cited, the more the Scriptures are expounded, the more that um, goal is being pursued. Second, the Word of God is the appointed instrument for salvation and edification. Why is it important to preach the Word? Here are just some reasons. Think about what the Word of God does. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, it can make one wise unto the salvation which is through faith in Christ Jesus. According to chapter 3 verse 16 of 2 Timothy, we're told that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The word of God is what begets new life. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23. The Word of God is what nourishes the new life that it begets. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. The Word of God is comfort bringing and it is hope begetting. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. It refreshes the soul and it makes simple the wise. Psalm 19, verse 7. It gives joy to the heart and light to the eyes. Psalm 19, verse 8. It can keep us from sin. Right? Psalm said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119. Uh, it provides us with counseling. Psalm 119, verse 24. It is a lamp and light that guides our feet in our path. Psalm 119, verse 105. It is a means of peace. Those who love your instruction have great peace. Psalm 119, verse 165. It's living and it's active. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. It is sanctifying. Ephesians chapter five, verse 26. It is powerful. The Apostle Paul described the message of the cross, and he described the gospel as powerful, or the power of God unto salvation. You see those things in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. No wonder why man is not called to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that's an abbreviated list. There's much more that could be said about what the word as to what the word of God does. A third, by way of prescription, uh, this this call preach the word, it's good for us to be reminded that there is edification and protection for the pastor and parishioners alike, for elders and parishioners alike. And there is also, within that preaching of the Word, found a necessary instrument for the evangelization of the lost. So I want to put a few thoughts here together. As as the Word of God is preached, the eldership that is called to be nourished by the Word of God, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, is going to be helped In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, over and over again, Paul's telling Timothy, you have to be nourished by these things, give yourself to these things, be absorbed in them, watch your life and watch your doctrine closely, in doing so you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And the idea, at least in part, is as a pastor, as the eldership, gives themselves to the Word of God, they will be protected. So if the eldership is preaching the Word of God, giving themselves to the Word of God, preparing to teach the Word of God, it serves as being a kind of Protective means for them, studying the Word of God and being in it themselves. But it also builds them up and builds up the flock. If you look at the way Paul spoke about the Word of God's grace, in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, he described it as that which is able to build up. It builds up the people of God. It builds up pastors and parishioners alike. But it's also the necessary instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to beget saving faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, by the Word of Christ, right? Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, says that a person is born again through the imperishable seed of the living and enduring Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. So for the pastor... It's to be a kind of IV that you're kind of attached to with a constant drip of biblical truth that is helping you. And then, by the grace of God, as the flock of God is hearing the word of God, they are built up and they are personally then, then pursuing the word of God, putting their own IV drips, so to speak, in of the word of God, meditating on it, being like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97, who says, oh, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation all the day long. And it's also the means, as it's preached, that God uses accompanied by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to save sinners. There are so many reasons to preach the Word of God. Preach the Word. When the opportunities came, Timothy needed to be ready. He needed to be ready in season and out of season. In other words, Timothy needed to be ready whenever the occasion arose to preach and teach God's Word. Whether things were convenient or whether things were inconvenient. Whether things are peaceful or whether things are chaotic. Whether he was free or whether he was in chains. When ministry, ministry looks successful and fruitful and when the results are discouraging and dismal, etc. He was to be ready to preach the Word. He didn't have to be resigned necessarily to a strict schedule, only teaching during scheduled times of worship. He had to be ready whenever and wherever, redeeming the time, using time doubtless for preparation and other times for preaching. And what must he do? Notice, he was to preach the Word, he was to be ready in season and out of season, and he was to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. This is so instructive. Though the wording is different, the language is so reminiscent of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's as though Paul, when he's calling Timothy to preach the Word, and he's calling him to be ready in season and out of season, and he's telling him to do these things, he was essentially telling Timothy that Timothy's preaching was to parallel the Scripture's appointed use. Even as the Scriptures do these things, Timothy's preaching was to do these things. You might say that Timothy's preaching was to unleash the Scripture, to do what the Scripture was called to do. I think that's a good way of putting it. Timothy was to, per the text we see the first thing, he was to reprove. And that word reprove has the idea of correcting. Um... He was also to, as we see in the text here, rebuke. This has the idea of uh, correcting and sternly telling the truth. It's, it's kind of the opposite of what false teachers um, do. A lot of False teachers in the scriptures, you see, they're not exactly known for pointing out sin. They don't do that. And Timothy was called to rebuke. There are times for rebuking. And it comes forth as a result of the word of God rebuking us and reproving us. So Timothy needed to do that. But he didn't only need to reprove and he didn't only need to rebuke, he also needed to exhort. Now this word exhort is interesting because the word can be used to mean exhort or entreat, but it's the same word that's so often used for comfort or to console or to encourage. And all of those things should be happening via the preaching of the Word of God. There should be moments in which you hear the word of God preach, and you're like, okay, I need to stop doing that. I need to stop thinking that way. I need to make a change of direction in my life. There should be that happening when you hear the Word of God. If you're holding on to bitterness, you got to uproot it. If you're holding on to unforgiveness, you need to let it go, and you need to forgive whoever you need to forgive. If you have any sin that you need to confess, and if you've offended somebody, you need to confess that sin. If you have relationships that you need to make right, you need to make them right. So you're going to see the Word of God reprove you and rebuke you. Those things are going to happen, but the teaching of the Word of God is also meant to exhort you, not just exhort you onto good works, but also to comfort you. Remember that Word can be used that way. You should be comforted by the reality that nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The seasons may change. People in positions of power may change. The way you look will change. So many things change, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. And the love that God has for you who are in Christ Jesus, it's a fixed love. That should comfort you. You never walk alone. God numbers your wanderings. He bottles your tears. But He's also with you, shepherding you in the midst of all of it. That should comfort you. See, all of these things are meant to happen in the preaching of the Word. There's correction. There's rebuking. There's reproving. There's comforting. So Timothy's preaching was to parallel the Scripture's appointed use. And notice how Timothy was to do this. He was to do this with great patience and instruction. So he wasn't supposed to do this with short-temperedness, right? So it would be wrong to say, oh, Timothy needed to reprove and rebuke so he can get mad at people. Trust me, a, a pastor who gets mad at the people that he's called to love and shepherd, that's not a good thing. You don't need to be angry at people when you're rebuking people. You want to do that with all patience. All markathumia. It's not that you take sin lightly. It's just that you're not living in a practice of irritability. God doesn't need sinful anger as a kind of needed ingredient, some kind of carnal fury to move the needle in people's lives. No, the Word of God will do that, accompanied by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So although Timothy needed to reprove and rebuke, he needed to do so with patience. And we saw even earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 2, even when he was withstanding those who were in opposition to God's truth, how did he need to do it? With gentleness. You let the Word of God work. There could be seriousness, and there could be solemnity, and doubtless there is to be passion, but it's nonetheless to be accompanied uh, and under the heading of great patience. And notice what else it's supposed to be accompanied with. Not only with great patience, and instruction. See, it's not enough to just know why. It's not enough to just n- to know to stop doing something. But there should be teaching that accompanies the rebuke. Well, I need to stop doing this because it's sinful in the eyes of God. Or I need to forgive because God in Christ has forgiven me. So how can I not forgive someone else? And I need to uproot bitterness because I know that it's a, it's a defiling root. And it will defile me. And I want to walk in a pure way before the living God. And so on. So this reproof and this instruction is to, in this teaching is to be accompanied by instruction as we see here. Joined to reproof, rebukes, correction, exhortation, and comforting should be... Teaching, um, it's instruction that begets reformation. Remember, we are transformed Romans chapter twelve verse two by the renewing of our minds. And so, I close today uh, with our beginning uh, with our beginning consideration of Second Timothy chapter four in verses one and two. I close with just saying, May we all, by the grace of God, be given to the Word of God. You all, as sons and daughters of the living God, you all have opportunities to share the Word of God with others. You may not be Timothy, and you may not be called to pastoral ministry, but I nonetheless say to you as the people of God, preach the Word of God. Share the word of God. Let others know the truth of God's word, the gospel, and the truth that's inseparable to it. You have people in your life that need to know the gospel. Preach the word. You're like, well, I'm not Timothy. I know. Preach the word. But I'm not a pastor. I know. Preach the word. I'm not telling you to have a pastoral ministry, and I'm not telling you to pretend you're Timothy. I'm just telling you to preach the word. You are a son or daughter of God. You have the words of life, you have the answer to forgiveness of sins and where it can actually be found share the gospel, preach the word. And then even in your own families and in your own spheres of influence, grow in the grace of speaking the word. Timely words, like apples of gold and setting of silver. The most timeliest of words will doubtless be those biblical truths that you find the Holy Spirit bringing to your mind at just the right time to comfort someone who's grieving, to help somebody who's hurting. To provide a little bit of extra courage to those who may be floundering in the midst of fear, speak the word. Proclaim the word of God. It's good for us to remember uh, that Jesus said that those who hear the word of God and obey it, they evidence themselves to be part of Jesus' family. Luke chapter 8, verse 21. More blessed than being uh, the one who had the honor of nursing. Um, the Son of God, is being among those who hear the Word of God and keep it. So I just want to say to us all, it's not just enough for us to proclaim the Word of God. We need to, as those who have been forgiven of our sins, we need to obey the Word of God. Not to earn salvation, but in light of salvation. Think about this. Just by way of application, I'll close here. What prescription of the Word of God, what commands of Scripture are you called to obey even this day? You're called to stir up one another towards love and good works. How are you gonna do that? You're called to encourage one another. Is there anyone you need to forgive? Are you gonna do that? How can you do that? Is there anyone that you can let know about the gospel even today? Even today, do that. Because we are called not only to be hearers of the word, we are called to be doers of the word. And one of the things that I often found enjoyable in my own life is not only uh, reading the Word of God to hear God's voice, but to gain God's direction by hearing His voice. And saying, I, need, I just need some direction. Is there something that I need to do? Let me look through some of the epistles, and let me just see if there's any fresh direction. And perhaps you'll have scriptures called to your mind, but I want to just call you to the reality of not only preaching and sharing the Word of God, which is part of obeying the Word of God, um, But to walk in a path of obedience. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the reality that um, your Son is coming again, and we get to live in light of that reality of His sure coming, even as His first coming has happened and was sure, so is His second coming, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to live with a joyful sense of anticipation of that moment. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that our consideration of that moment will beget fidelity and will uh, beget obedience to you in the here and now, Lord. So, Father, may you find in us a growing desire to hear the Word of God and to keep it. To hear the Word of God and obey it. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for not only the the correction and the reproving that your word provides. Thank you, Heavenly Father. And thank you for how your word tells us to love the one who corrects us and to love instruction. So, Father, may you find in us the growing grace of loving to hear your instruction and your correction in our lives. But, Father, may we continue to rejoice in the fact that we are not alone, but your voice continues to speak to us through the scriptures whereby you comfort us whereby You encourage us. Thank You for such precious promises that we have. So Father, for believers, may uh, afresh they be moved, may we be moved to fidelity in light of the prospect of the Lord's coming. May You find us sharing the Word um, by Your grace more and more, ready in season and out of season. And if there is anyone, Heavenly Father, who has not come to that place of forgiveness of sins, may the reality that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead beget in them a sense of need, a holy fear of God, whereby they might run to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from their sins and looking to Him alone, and knowing that they need not fear the great white throne, if by grace they come to the Son, who bore the immeasurable punishment, at least by our standards, and bore that punishment on their behalf, Lord. Bring them. Call all of the... Uh, lost sheep that you have from the four corners of the earth home and perhaps by your grace we'll see more and more coming to you here on 266 Wood Avenue. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.